I really wish people knew that there is a lot of negative influence in underestimating. So that means when you underestimate the potential of yourself or others, you're really limiting that potential. And I like to think about like the Apopo rat as a prime example of this. We underestimate the rat and what good the rat can do. We do this all the time to our fellow humans. We see somebody on the street, we see them in the bus, and we underestimate their life circumstances, what good they can do. But we also underestimate ourselves, right? We think and hear about all of the, the troubles in the world. And a lot of times I think we think, uh, there's so much out there and I'm just one person. What can I do? And the truth is you can do something every single day that has a positive impact. It may not solve all of the world's troubles in a single day, but it is a positive impacting step forward. So I think we as a people have to stop underestimating. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear conversations that generate one aha moment after another for you. There is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost none of us knows nearly enough about. And on this podcast, you're going to hear from people making the world a better place who are leading that wave of goodness and progress. Hi, I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of The Goodness Exchange, which is the mothership website of this podcast. At The Goodness Exchange, you're going to find articles and interviews, videos and links where we're offering the world instant access to a positive worldview, newsworthy insight and innovation that's just not rising to the top of our feeds. It is still an amazing world out there, and we're going to bring you the people who are making it that way. So today we're going to shine a light on an amazing world leader who, I don't know, when I discovered her work and the work of the organization she's doing, my mind just, it just kicked the door down on what I thought was possible. So today we're going to meet Dr. Cindy Fast. She's head of training and innovation for an amazing organization doing some of the most important work in our world when it comes to health and safety. And most of us know nothing about this organization's groundbreaking work. Okay, don't worry. This is not going to be some conversation about international health policy or intricate practices for safety. No, you're going to be operating in a fascinating intersection with astonishing possibilities. Okay, there are remarkable gains being made in landmine clearing, the stopping of the spread of tuberculosis, other burgeoning projects like new search and rescue techniques, all from a discovery of a unique partnership. One between humans and the African giant pouched rat. No, no, don't go anywhere. This is not going to be a conversation about rats other than their brilliance and the remarkable superpowers that they allow us to tap into. Turns out there are no end to the ways we can tap into this, this world of animal senses and solve some of our most vexing problems. And Dr. Cindy Fast is leading the innovative work at an organization called a Popo Hero Rats. Now, I'm not pronouncing that perfect, A-P-O-P-O, -O, so I want people to be able to look it up later. But she's been at this in Morogoro, Tanzania. She's going to help me with all these pronunciations for about six and a half years. They're training rats to save lives at a most basic level. And the research she's doing is going to blow the doors open on all kinds of other possibilities. So Dr. Fast has a PhD and a master's degree in psychology and specializing in learning and behavior and behavioral neuroscience. So she, her mind was just perfectly tuned in to look at the minds of humans and animals differently and find some interesting intersections. She has more than 20 years experience in conducting research and she's received numerous awards. She's part of a mentor system for Global STEM Alliance. It just, I could go on and on with the accolades. Welcome Dr. Cindy Fast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Linda. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I tell you, we've written an article about your work on the Goodness Exchange. So if people go to the Goodness Exchange, all you have to do is pop in the search box, probably rats, <laughs> and it's going to pop up. You could also pop in landmines or tuberculosis in the search box. But that's the wonder I find at where your organization is working. It's in this place where it would be easy for us to have some really limiting beliefs. 
like the creepy factor here might draw some people to like, oh, I don't want to listen to this podcast. But these limiting beliefs are, are often holding the keys to some pretty powerful answers to some of our world's problems. Talk to us about the founding story of Apopo. In 1997, what was, what was going on in 1997 that some of us may have forgotten or may not live through? Yeah, I think probably the thing that most of us can relate to in 1997, and maybe we can't put the date to it, was when Princess Diana died. And we can remember that Princess Di was very much about landmines, right? And that was also the same year that the Ottawa Mine Ban Treaty was signed. So landmines at that time were on the global front and on the minds of everyone. And particularly in resource poor areas of the world, like in Africa, the landmines were a very serious problem because they are very expensive and costly and dangerous to clear. And landmines, you know, not only cause these tragic accidents in terms of injuries, because they injure people indiscriminately. It's not just, you know, soldiers, it's also civilians, it's school children, but also they, they, present this sort of psychological barrier in terms of this threat that's out there hidden. And they segregate communities and block access to agriculture and, and all of the things that are needed for, you know, post-conflict development. So our founder was a master's student, an engineering student, and he was posed with the problem of coming up with an innovative solution. And so, like most of the world in 1997, he was focused on a sustainable solution that could be applied in places like Africa. And he came across an article where someone had trained hamsters to detect explosives. And he thought, well, you know, as a kid, I had pet rats and they're very clever. So if anybody can train hamsters to do this, then certainly rats could do it. The idea was born and, and it's gone from there. You know, there's so many things in that story that I love. That there's so much serendipity that that he should have grown up with pet rats, and that he came across. He just came across the article about the hamsters. That it was a pressing problem. He wasn't like ten years too early before people cared about it. The timing was right. There's so many things in that story that that we can all you know count on as part of our future in solving problems too. Those things will continue to happen in the world of problem solving, right? Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that also just surprises me in terms of serendipity, looking back and reflecting on this is, you know, our founder Bart Regions had read this paper on hamsters. And he was thinking of pet rats, you know, the rats that we're more familiar with. But it turns out the rats that are perfect for this job are African giant pouched rats. And they're actually more closely related to hamsters. That's where they get their name. The pouch is actually cheek pouches. So if you've ever seen a hamster or, you know, a chipmunk or a squirrel, when they're gathering food, they put it in these cheek pouches. So with Bart not even realizing it, the rats he was going to end up training and that we're still training today are actually cousins to the hamsters. There you go. We just got to open up our minds. Just clear out some limiting beliefs and anything is possible. So one of the th sentences they said to me in our pre-call interview, the first rat I met... <laughs> <laughs> okay, not many of us can say that. Finish that sentence for us, because that was a great story of, about a rat named Courage, right? That's right, right. Yeah, so the first rat I met when I joined Apopo in Tanzania was Courage, and Courage was in our landmine detection training program. He was in the final stages. He was really the class superstar, maybe the valedictorian if we had that. And he was being prepared to help clear the landmines in Cambodia. So when I first arrived, you know, I go to the training field and there's this very surreal feeling of uh, being on a real minefield. Now, our minefield is fortunately the only minefield in Tanzania and all of the landmines are deactivated. So you're perfectly safe. But there's still this eerie feeling of being on this minefield and knowing that there's these buried killers all around you and you can't even see them. And I watched Courage work and it was, it made the hair on my arms stand up. I knew what I was getting into. I knew all about a popo and I was so excited to get started, but to watch Courage work was just amazing. And when he was finished searching for the mines and he found everything, of course, I was just so excited that I had to go over and kind of greet him. And he came right over to me and sniffed kind of like a dog would greet you and sniff your hand. And without even thinking, I kind of scratched his back 
And just like a dog or a cat, he stretched up and leaned into me, sort of on his tippy toes. And I, I just thought to myself, oh my gosh, I am scratching a rat's back and he is loving it. <laughs> okay, I just got goosebumps for the third time in this interview. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's something to these idea bombs that you're dropping. They're just little like, oh, what else is possible kind of moments. Okay. So so you, is there anything more you can give us if people are having trouble with this conversation so far that helps us relate to them? How can we relate to rats differently? Well, you know, when I first started working with rats as an undergraduate student studying neuroscience, I was squeamish around them as well. I'm not going to lie. I've always loved animals. So I was open to the idea that this is another animal. But I remember the first time I walked into the lab, I, I opened up one of the cages and a bunch of rats jumped out actually. And they were running around the lab and I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I going to catch them? I've got to get them all rounded up. I don't know what to do. So, but fast forward quite a few years and just being around them day to day, the way that I relate to the rats now is they remind me more of a curious kitten. They're kind of playful. They really enjoy to ex exploring things. They're very clever. I mean, that's part of how they've become you know, notorious as vermin is because they are so clever at solving puzzles about how to get food. And so they're, they're invading our markets, they're getting into our homes, because they're just master problem solvers about getting food. But really, if you just look at the rat outside of that context, they're really very clever, they're friendly, especially our rats that we work with, because we, we breed them in captivity, and we start handling them from the moment that their eyes open. So they really trust humans and they're very well socialized. But we work together with them as if they're our colleagues, right? They're not just a tool or, you know, just some other animal. They're, they're our fellow team members. And I think it, it takes a little bit to see that if you've never been around rats, but you can imagine them as sort of like a small lap dog, right? Or, or this curious cat. Oh, and there's possibility everywhere going in that path, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much. You told me so many things in our pre-interview that are possible. We're going to get to that today. We're going to take a break and introduce people to a whole other world of possibility. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the story of Happy. This is such a, <laughs> a wonderful rat. Okay. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll learn so much more. Hi, Dr. Linda Ulrich here, founder of the Goodness Exchange. Hey, did you know that a recent Harvard study found that just 90 seconds of positive news each day will make you 18% more optimistic, 32% less anxious, and 12% more likely to feel gratitude? Yes, if you make a habit of learning about just one piece of remarkably good news each day, you will radiate joy and strength and ideas in all your circles. And the goodness exchange will give you that instant access you need to positive news, fresh insights, and uplifting perspectives. That will save you time and your sanity. Okay, that solves the problem in our personal lives. But what about our working environments? We need to feel alive in those places and feel supported. Well, enter the Goodness Exchange for business. For companies all over the world, who want to create optimistic, values-driven work cultures. Our content can give them a way to turn aspirational ideas like positivity into a concrete way of being in the workplace. In fact, employee retention and attraction may now depend on your culture's ability to nurture this tone of insight and innovation and possibility. So why should we care? I don't know which one of the following statistics is more important. In 2022, only 32% of people reported feeling engaged at work. And that's the second year in a row there for a decline in that report. And one study found that 70% of employees say they would leave their current organization for a different employer offering resources to reduce burnout. This is hard to hear, but your work culture can offer something new, peace of mind and a sense of flourishing where employees' well-being isn't just a perk any longer. Addressing the root cause of employee burnout is critical to every company's bottom line, and the goodness exchange for business is the perfect way to do that. 
we can meaningfully elevate the results of your company's wellness efforts and benefits packages and give you an organization that has its foundations in a shared sense of positivity. If you'd like to chat about infusing your company's culture with a tone of celebration about what's right with the world, about goodness and innovation and progress, we'd love to chat. Contact our CEO, Liesl, at info at goodness-exchange.com. Thanks. Okay, we're back with Dr. Cindy Fast. She is Director of Innovation and Training with APOPO, an amazing organization in the world that has so much running room. Right now, well, we're going to have Cindy give us some facts and figures on that, but they have largely cleared certain huge areas of landmines that have been keeping people from living safe lives for decades in places in Africa. But also, we're going to talk about how rats can be trained to discover tuberculosis and stop the spread of that deadly disease, on and on and on. So we're back and I want you to tell us the story of the rat named Happy. Yeah, Happy is one of my favorite stories as well. So Happy was a tuberculosis detecting rat. She had been working in that line or that career for quite some time before I had even joined a popo. And she was coming up on retirement. So one of the great things about our rats is that they also have a very long lifespan. So in captivity, they live an average of six to eight years. So you can imagine if it takes about a year to train them to do this sort of work, they still have a very long working career ahead of them. Other rodents that we're familiar with, like, you know, a sewer rat or something, maybe lives two to three years. So you certainly don't want to spend a year training them and then have them only be able to work for a year. So anyway, happy was approaching nine years old and she really was a happy rat. And I would go to watch her at work sniffing these patient samples. And she was starting to look a little bit older in terms of she would move a little slower. Her joints were maybe a little stiffer. But when we would put her in that cage to start sniffing the patient samples, she would just light up. And I don't want to anthropomorphize at all, but our rats really are very expressive. And she would just light up and would be so diligent about sniffing this sample and sniffing this one and, and getting the job done. You know, just like most of our rats, she would sniff about 100 patient samples in under 20 minutes. So she would just get right to business. And she so would describe so that. Describe what oh. that looks like, because I think it'd be wonderful. You can go to the video again on the Goodness Exchange article about this and see it in the video. But for those who won't have that opportunity, describe what it looks like in the setting so they can appreciate this zipping between samples. Yeah, so we have a a custom engineered cage, which is just a big giant rectangle. And on the floor of this rectangle, there are 10 holes. And underneath those holes, we place a patient sample. It's a sputum sample, which is basically just phlegm that, you know, a suspected TB patient has coughed up from their lungs. So it's held in this little cup underneath the floor of the cage that the rat's walking in. And they just walk from one end of the cage to the other placing their nose in this hole on the floor. And if they smell the presence of TB in a sample, they just hold their nose there steady. So they kind of freeze over it for about three seconds. Now, three seconds seems really quick for you and me, but for a rat, it's like an eternity. So they, they wiggle, they'll maybe scratch. They're like, is it been three seconds? And they get really excited because what they know is if they're right, they get a food reward. And we all know rats love food, right? And so they get super excited whenever they detect the smell of TB in a patient sample. So we partner with the local health clinics to collect all of the patient samples that they have screened for the day. And we bring it into our centralized labs where our rats then re-screen them. So they're performing second line screening. Now the clinic themselves may have found a few TB patients. We let the rat sniff that as well. So if the rat indicates TB is present in a sample that the clinic has already detected, we can reward the rat for that behavior. But there's other patients that the clinic said, nope, I don't see any TB here. And the rat will say, yes, there is TB here. Now, of course, we don't know if the rat is correct or not, so we can't reward them. So in the case of Happy, she was continuing to sniff all these samples one at a time, dip, 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 dip. Oh, here's one. And she'd freeze and she'd wiggle her little booty <laughs> and get all excited about the food treat that was coming. But I, I, I kind of put my foot down and I said, you know, happy. <laughs> She's not listening to me, but her trainers are. 
she's nine years old. She's got to have a time for retirement. So I forced her to retire. And we actually have a retirement program I call our Rat Florida. And so the rats get to sort of live in this really enriched environment, these giant cages with lots of different levels and, and ropes to climb on and running wheels. So happy retired to Florida, our Florida. And there she lived until she was 11 years old. She ended up being our oldest hero rat that we've ever had. Wow. I got goosebumps again. Okay. So I love the way you explained that. But my one little question popped in my mind. I think we got close to it. How come if the rats learn that if they stop and they get all shivery about something, how come they don't learn to just do that in front of every square so they get a reward? Well, because doing that comes at a cost for the rat, right? It's like waiting for an eternity, like asking your two-year-old to sit still for 10 minutes, right? It's like almost impossible for them. And why exert all of that effort if you're not actually going to get rewarded for it? So the rat learns that the only time I get rewarded for having to sit still for three seconds is if it smells this way. So if I don't smell that thing, it's not even worth the effort. And that's why they're so quick and efficient, because when they sniff a sample where there is not TB, it only takes them about a millisecond or a few milliseconds. It's just one little sniff and they move right on, move right on. That's just crazy. Okay. So now that we understand the TB aspect of this, I got a million questions there too, but let's help other folks appreciate. I mean, the scope of this landmine project is incredible. I mean, we got to, you got to know a little bit about um, history that of these, you know, wars that have gone on in various places. And for instance, is it Mozambique that's just been, that's just been able to be designated landmine free? T tell us about the history there. If we don't really understand how we got here with all these landmines everywhere. Yeah, that's a very good question. To be honest, I've not been, become an expert on the conflicts in all of the areas that we work. But in Mozambique, they were declared landmine free in 2017. And our rats were a big part of that. So we, we joined the forces and the teams on the ground in Mozambique and worked there for many years. Found, geez, now I'm not going to remember the number of how many landmines we, we did find, but we helped clear the remaining minefields there so that it could be declared landmine free. So the way this works is if there's some giant internal conflict, at least back in the day, that was just part of it is just one side or the other would just to would just lay lay a whole agricultural field in landmines. And there's no way that you could know where those were. And then, of course, after the conflict was over, no one could remember where they were. So they just sat there waiting to blow up some hapless farmer or their dog or what have you. That's kind of the gist of it, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. You're absolutely yeah. right. And you know, the one thing that's very ironic about it is that both sides are laying landmines, right? And sometimes right. that is to, you know, protect specific areas from the enemy. And other times are even around your current area, right? And so you might actually block yourself into a small area because you're thinking that you're protecting yourself from the enemy. And then, like you say, after the conflict is over, the records of where those landmines were laid are lost and it's hard to say where they're at. Yeah. Okay. So then the rats come along and the, how I understand it, it, you can explain it more deeply is that, you know, you could probably train dogs to do this, but dogs that would be very costly and they would, they would, they're too heavy. They would set off the landmine. So then you'd lose dog after dog that you train, but tell us about why rats are perfect for this. Well, so, so dogs are too heavy in terms of if all of their body weight was centered on the pressure sensitive area, they have the risk of detonating it. Now, when the dog is walking, their body weight is distributed across their feet, right? And so there are landmine detecting dogs. And for the most part, they're absolutely safe. But there is the risk that if the dog were to stand on all fours in the same sensitive or pressure sensitive part of the landmine, it could detonate. Or if the dog were to sit on the landmine, it could detonate. So unfortunately, there have actually been accidents with landmine detecting dogs. Now with the rats, their entire body weight is not enough to detonate the landmine. So they are absolutely safe to sit on it, to jump on it even if they wanted to. And there's no risk of injury for them or their handlers. The other big benefit for the rats is that they don't pair bond with their handler. So dogs have a long history of selective breeding to be receptive to people 
we, we work together in partnership, right? And so dogs really pick up on the cues of their handler. They might only work with a specific handler. So if you've trained this dog and your dog is not going to go to work somewhere, you have to travel with that dog. The dog may not work for someone else. But our rats don't make that pair bond. And so as long as the handlers on the ground, wherever the rat is deployed, are using the same techniques, the rat is happy to work for them as well. Oh, that is just... And these are the ingenious little discoveries along the way, right? This didn't just evolve out of uh, all together in one big, oh, now we're doing it. It's a constant learning process that I love because, you know, there's that's, I'm sure, how you're developing collaborations with other people on things. Like, talk to us about the possibilities in the search and, search and rescue. Yeah, so we were actually approached by a Turkish nonprofit volunteer group that does search and rescue. Their name is Gea. And they said, we have all of these natural disasters where these buildings collapse, particularly earthquakes. And it's such a challenge for us to locate where the survivors are trapped. Once we've located them, we have lots of really great techniques and tools available to us to try and get to that, that victim and get them out to safety and, and get them medical treatment. But the real challenge is just finding where is everybody at? Where are the people trapped? And there's certain technologies available for that, but they all have their limitations. So Gayo was explaining to us that one of the things that they were using was cameras. So long little like telescopic cameras that they could stick down into cracks deep into the rubble and try to look around. But there's a limitation to how far that camera can look. Or there was some developments in robots. But likewise, that robot needs to have some power cord or it needs to be able to transmit a signal or receive a signal to navigate from through all of those tons of rubble and concrete and rebar. They had scent detection dogs, but the dogs could only sniff, sniff from the surface. So they were really good at locating, like there might be someone in this general area, but exactly where the person was or how far down was still a mystery. And they also had ground penetrating radar available but in order for that to be effective and, and really reliable, the area has to be completely silent and still. And that's never really happening following a natural disaster where we have all this emergency crews coming through. So they approached us and they said, hey, we, we've heard about how you can train your rats to sniff out certain things. Do you think you could train them to sniff out people? And could do you think that they would go down inside this rubble of a building? And so we, we started this collaboration and a lot of brainstorming. And now we have rats in training for this. And what I love about this project is not only does it open up the places where our rats can help save human lives, but it's also really innovative in combining low-tech and high-tech solutions together to bridge the gaps of both of them. So our rats can go down where a dog can't reach. But he has the scent power, the nose of a dog. So the rat can actually sniff out a person in a guided search that a robot wouldn't be able to do or a camera alone wouldn't be able to do. But once the rat has found someone, they can't tell us that they've done that, right? We can't see them. They're way down into this rubble. So what we're doing is we're outfitting the rats with this little technology-enabled backpack. And this is in collaboration with some engineering students at, at a Dutch university. And what the rat has been trained to do is pull a little ball on his vest. And when the rat pulls that ball, it triggers a micro switch. It turns on a camera so we can see the victim. We have a microphone and a speaker so we can talk to the victim. They can talk to us. We can let them know help is on the way. The backpack also has a position sensor, so we can tell where is the rat down under all of this rubble and really focus our search efforts, or rescue efforts, I should say. And the other thing that's really great about this is if the rat is walking around with this backpack underground in this rubble, we can also determine areas as clear, right? So we know there's no need to search further here because the rat never indicated we found anybody. And we're looking on the camera and we don't see any signs of anybody either. So we can focus efforts somewhere else. That is so huge. You know, 
I don't know if I got an extra empathy gene <laughs> that is a burden, but I literally could not watch the footage on the news about the recent earthquakes that it produced the kind of rubble exactly that you're talking about. And when I think of of the possibilities that you're just describing, it is mind-bogglingly beautiful. But for all the reasons, I mean, you just listed off 10, 10 reasons why this makes so much more sense than all the other alternatives. So great. Too many goosebump moments in this interview already for me. So I want to ask you, this is also what I keep hearing through this over and over again, because of the technology that exists and because of the rats being how they are, this is just a wonderful best use of limited resources. Don't you think like that somehow that's where this innovation really has a sweet spot too? Absolutely. That's one of the things that we're most proud of. And I think Tanzania as a nation is is proud of their African giant pouch rats because of the work that we're doing. And I think one of the things that we didn't expect to do is to really turn that global north-south technology dichotomy on its head, right? In the resource-poor areas, particularly south of the equator, it's importing things from the north to solve problems that are here. And those are generally quite expensive. They're difficult to maintain. And so resource-poor areas of the world maybe don't even have access to those solutions, but even so they're imported. And with Apopo, what we're doing is we're taking a locally available, sustainable resource and developing it in a very cost-efficient way that can then be used to solve challenges both locally and abroad. So we're, we're exporting our technology from you know, sub-Saharan Africa to other parts of the world. Yeah, because I, I think somewhere in our in our interview, you told me that this isn't just isolated to Mozambique. You've been in more than, what, 65 countries or? No, no, no. There's landmines oh, remaining. I know what it was. Landmines remaining were in 65 countries, which That's shows right. you the scope of that whole issue that this, that these wonderful limited resources could be applied to that when, when we've got no end to the other problems in this world. To me, this reminds me of something that Christopher Gorder of Charity Water said to me in an interview. You may know that's one of the largest charities in the world, most successful. He said, because their charity provides drinking water to people all over the world. He said, hey, this is one of those problems we know how to solve. And I think that is such a beautiful sentence in a world that feels like doom and gloom is everywhere. So, that's what I love about your project also. Like, you guys are into a lot of things that you know how to solve for problems with things like, oh, like, let's just talk about a few other things like the endangered species trafficking and the, um, oh, you told me about something else. Oh, you know, safe drinking water. These rats can be applied to all kinds of problems. Tell me just the highlights of other things that are possible. Well, in general, I think you, you highlighted that. What we look at is where there's existing gaps and where the, we think that the rat's unique qualities and characteristics can help fill those gaps. So we've already started training rats. It's moving close to operational trials for deployment to have the rats help sniff out illegally smuggled wildlife to help preserve endangered species and biodiversity. So rhino horns just moving in mass numbers out of the African continent. And a lot of this is going in these giant shipping containers where there's not really an easy way of screening them. So we're developing a way for our rats to be able to sniff out the presence of this material inside the containers. Uh, we have rats that are in training to detect contamination in soil so that they can you know, not only say whether the, the contaminant is there, but also how much of it is there to guide the cleanup efforts. And of course, that could be used in all sorts of different ways, whether it's you know, converting an industrial area into residential property and parks, or maybe it's, you know, for agricultural use to make sure that the, it's good soil quality for producing food. Yeah, we also have other disease detection, the search and rescue. These three projects are moving close to that operational trial phase. So we've been developing them for a number of years now. But the detection of leakages in safe drinking water is an idea that we have now. We haven't started training the rats, but we believe our rats could do this work. And we've been talking with a few potential partners and collaborators and, and trying to figure out exactly how we can move forward with it. But the 
idea here is there's so many tons of gallons of safe drinking water that is lost before it makes it to people's homes. And these are in resource poor areas of the world where safe drinking water is a very scarce commodity that's absolutely needed. And what is happening is it, it's leaking out of the pipes. But how can you tell if you find some wet ground, if that is a leaky pipe, or if it's just some rainwater that happened to pool there? Well, we think that the rat can sniff out and smell the difference. And then, of course, you can go in and, and fix the pipes, right? And then the water makes it to the people who need it. Well, I think that that could be, I was just talking to a farmer. I live in a, an agriculture area of Vermont, and I was just talking about that, that kind of thing to a local villager. Our village has only 600 people in it, and they have a hard time finding where the water leaks are. Water is also a very scarce commodity in this area. It's all rock for thousands of feet. So there's not these, it's not so easy to drill a well. And he's, you know, this is a solution that could be applied right here in, in the United States over and over again, I'm sure, if we could get all get over it with rats. <laughs> okay, because that brings us to this wonderful story you tell about the Gold Bravery Award, the Medal of Bravery, and an amazing story about a, a rat named ooh, Mugawa. Very close, yeah, Mugawa. 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 Okay, tell us Mugawa this amazing story. Mugawa is one of our landmine detection rats in Cambodia. He alone had sniffed out. Geez, now I'm not even going to remember the exact number, but he was one of our most successful landmine detection rats. Very sadly, he passed away last year. But two years ago, he was awarded the Medal of Bravery for Animals from PDSA, which is a nonprofit charity in the UK. And this was the very first time that the medal had ever been awarded to an animal other than a dog. So there was a lot of interesting conversations about how they could modify the metal so that it would actually fit Magawa and not be too large for him to wear. But Magawa really did save so many lives by sniffing out all of these landmines in Cambodia. And it's really a tragic loss that he passed away. He didn't have an, an accident or anything. It was just of old age. He had a very successful career. But in, in Tanzania, everyone is very proud of Magawa. And we actually even have a Panya Magawa road. And Panya in Swahili means rat. So we have a, a road named after Rat Magawa now in Morogoro, where our training facility is at. Now, in this town that you're in, is that Apopo? Is the town Apopo? name? No, no. Morogoro is the town that we're oh, in. Morogoro. Okay. So also, I think you mentioned that we have to dive deeply into this. They, they don't have a pet mentality in Africa. So to embrace a, a brave rat is quite a leap, but then the whole community has embraced it so much. Talk to us about that, that no pet mentality, but it's the hero status and the lovely part of that and the pride, the pride in place that's come of this. Yeah, it's really incredible to witness firsthand and even to see it continuing to grow since I've been here and see how that, you know, has developed, especially with Magawa winning the award. But it, within Morogoro, I think everyone's very much aware of Apopo and the work that we're doing. So you have locals who maybe take people on, on tours when they're coming to visit and they, they make it a point to go by Apopo and, and point out, oh, yes, and this is where our African rats are trained to save lives. We also, you know, as part of the recruitment of our trainers, all of our trainers are from Tanzania and the areas surrounding Morogoro, really all, over, all across Tanzania. And when we launch the recruitment, we get hundreds of applications, which is, you know, takes weeks to sort through and, and shortlist. But of course, nobody has experience training rats. And there's not a huge pet culture, as you said, Linda. And so most people also don't have a lot of experience interacting with dogs or cats the way that we have growing up in the U.S. So it's really difficult to kind of shortlist. And even then, you don't know if you have the right person, somebody who's going to go and pick up this rat, right? So we, part of our interview process is a practical. And we ask them to, we, we demonstrate to them how to properly pick up a rat, and then we ask them to do it. And it's really a challenge to that candidate to say, are you willing to be brave 
and have an open mind. And one of my best trainers I have now is a woman. And I remember her interview. She hasn't been with us as long as some of our trainers. She's only been with us a couple of years. But she was just acing the interview. And then it came time for the practical. And we showing her, you know, this is how you pick up the rats. And I saw her, you know, just kind of leaning back and watching with her eyes kind of squinted. And I was like, okay, now it's your turn. Do you think you can do this? And she just took a deep breath. And she said, let's do this. And she just walked up so bravely and confidently and picked up this rat. And once it was in her arms, I could see her a smile come on her face. And then the, she put the rat down and she was like, my mom is never going to believe this. <laughs> and now here she is training with us every single day. And, you know, that's a quality in some people, right? That they can just suspend all this life experience and all this outside training that we've had about what's good and what's bad in this world. They can just suspend it and dive forward. I imagine that you're looking for people who can do that pretty quickly. Yeah, that's definitely one of the biggest qualities that we're looking for in our team members is to just have an open mind and a willingness to learn. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that applies in all our lives, right? There's not an employer in this world that, that wouldn't agree to that statement. And maybe that's all the farther it goes when, you, when you're deciding on employees. Who has an openness more at the moment? You get down to the last 10, who, which one seems to have the most open mind and the most willingness to learn? That, that's just such a great life skill. Okay. So a couple of things that we haven't covered that are is still in my question list. Talk to me about funding. This is so huge. There's got to be people listening to this interview saying, wait, how does this all get paid for? Well, we have a combination of funding sources. So for some of our research projects, we have specific private donors or organizations. So for instance, with the wildlife detection project, we've received some research support and grants from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, from the German Development Corporation, and even from UNDP and USAID collaboration there. So we have some project specific, particularly for research funding, but for most of our applications and in our day-to-day -day operations and training the rats, a lot of this is supported by public fundraising. And so that is really just absolutely instrumental in us being able to keep moving forward. And it provides us that unrestricted funding so that we can flexibly adapt as we are learning lessons, right? So Linda, you were saying, you know, an, an open mind and a willingness to learn and how important that is. And as you were saying that, it, it occurred to me, like, that's what we are at Apopo. We started off with this idea about rats and landmines. And then because we had an open mind, we shifted to the health sector with second line screening for tuberculosis. And then this willingness to learn and, and to try new things now has our rats positioned to help, you know, not only save humans trapped after a natural disaster, but also help protect other animals and, and endangered species. That is such a huge point. <laughs> okay. So, and that's going to be the mentality, I believe, of the future of work, is that people are going to want these qualities that they have for innovation and ideas and, and openness and collaboration to matter. We're not just going to be willing to just place widgets in the future. So there's another great everyday learning and attachment to our daily lives too. So, but what's one thing that I don't think is attached to our daily lives here in the, probably the listenership of this podcast is our understanding of how important tuberculosis is in the out in the wider world. We may have largely licked it here in the United States, maybe in North America. I don't know the exact stats on that. It's not something most of us think about as an everyday threat, but it is the most deadliest infectious disease. What are the numbers on that? Before COVID even, right? Out in the wider world? That's right. Prior to COVID, it was the world's deadliest infectious disease. So every single day, more people died from TB than from HIV and malaria combined. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a very serious problem all over the globe, primarily in developing parts of the world and with limited resources. And the, the big challenge with TB is that it's highly contagious, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the resources to properly diagnose it and treat it, not only are you at risk of actually dying from it, even though it's treatable, but you're spreading it to others all around you in your community. So it becomes very you know, high burden in these developing countries and parts of the world. 
it ended up being second deadliest after COVID, COVID. And I think now that, you know, COVID is hopefully getting under control, I'm, I'm sad to say probably TB is going to be the number one again. So there is a ripple effect, I'm assuming. I mean, we've we've been talking and talking, talking about a TB, but I'm sure there are other applications of this that will come down the line. For instance, I, we've written an article for the Goodness Exchange about the fact that dogs can be trained to, to know and tell seizure sufferers before they have their seizure or detect breast cancer in early stages. I'm sure that there are other disease states that, that this could be applied to as time goes by as well that, that are relevant to everyone around the world. Absolutely. And that's something that we are, is always on our radar. And we're always trying to look at, you know, what can our rats do that has the biggest potential impact in terms of beneficiaries? And where is the rat uniquely positioned to help? So we have successfully trained our rats to detect and as a proof of principle, another zoonotic disease. So that means it can be passed from animals to people. Um, It's called brucellosis. And the big thing there is that there aren't really reliable diagnostics for brucellosis. It's a blood test. The way that it's usually transmitted to humans is from dairy animals. So it's cattle and goats. Well, you're not going to, in resource poor areas of the world, give every member of your herd of cattle a blood test. So what tends to be the most reliable test is called a milk ring test. Well, that means it's it's testing the milk from these dairy animals. You're only going to be able to test your lactating females. And there's no test for the whole rest of your herd. So you might miss it. And before you know it, your entire herd is infected and there's no effective treatment for the animals. So you end up having to cull your entire herd, which is a huge damage to you know, an agricultural or to a farmer in these resource poor areas of the world. So what we're looking to do is have our rats be able to reliably detect brucellosis in a variety of sample medium. So imagine how it opens up if the rat can sniff out this disease in feces. You can now test you know, young animals, males and females, even wild populations of animals can contract this disease and transmit it to domesticated animals or to people. So you could be collecting scat from the wild animals and, and screening it. Possibilities here are mind-boggling. So tell me, in the as we kind of wrap up here, what do you really wish people knew? Like, if we only had one question to ask you today, and or the time for only one question, and... You know, I I have my own answer to that question when I get interviewed. I really wish people knew that their click is like a vote, that anything they give their attention to on the internet, they will get more of. And we have to stop complaining about the negative news if we're always clicking on it. Right, right. (laughs) Okay, there's mine in a nutshell. But what do you really wish people knew? I really wish people knew that there is a lot of negative influence in underestimating. So that means when you underestimate the potential of yourself or others, you're really limiting that potential. And I like to think about like the Apopo rat as a prime example of this. We underestimate the rat and what good the rat can do. We do this all the time to our fellow humans. We see somebody on the street, we see them in the, the bus, and we underestimate their life circumstances, what good they can do. But we also underestimate ourselves, right? We think and hear about all of the troubles in the world. And a lot of times I think we think uh, there's so much out there and I'm just one person. What can I do? And the truth is you can do something every single day that has a positive impact. It may not solve all of the world's troubles in a single day, but it is a positive impact and it's a step forward. So I think we as a people have to stop underestimating. That is such a lovely sentiment. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try and practice it a few times just today and see if I can keep that going for a week and maybe it'll become habit. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if this is true in other careers too, but it's, it's a big problem in science, particularly for women. They even have a name for it. It's called the imposter syndrome, where women don't see themselves as scientists, right? And what does that mean? It means that we're underestimating ourselves because we don't fit that image of what a scientist is. 
And I, I think that that's very limiting as well. And I maybe somewhere in there, it comes down to just underestimating and not thinking of the positive potential and opportunities and embracing those. You know, that, that reminds me of something you said, you know, that you were a girl from a village in Michigan that never thought you'd live in Africa and sit at the decision-making position you're in, in all this innovation and positive progress. Like, what if you'd, what if you'd never been able to think big? Yeah, I, oof, I don't know. It, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, what, growing up, you know, in the outskirts of a village, I wasn't even in the village. We were in the outskirts. You know, in so many ways, it actually prepared me perfectly for living in Africa, Africa, because, you know, back then in the early 80s and the outskirts of the village, there would be no reason for us to lose power, right? Like, it's not that there was a big storm. It was just, you know, a sunny day and we would lose electricity and it would be out for an entire week. So now I'm perfectly prepared for the frequent power outages that we experience in Tanzania. It's like no big deal for me. But yeah, I mean, growing up, you know, my my dad worked as a welder. He's a working class family. My mom was a stay at home mom. I had an older brother and an older sister. I spent a lot of my time just running around with the animals and you know climbing trees and swimming in the ponds and the lakes. And um, I loved horses. So I've you know, was working on a farm, exchanging the work I was doing there so I could spend some time with their horses and learn riding lessons. And I didn't see myself as a scientist. I didn't see myself as going out and trying to help the world. But it was something I always wanted to do, I guess, in terms of make a positive impact. Yeah, you know, and so many of the great people who give us feedback on this podcast and who listen are sharing it with other people. I think because it opens up a part of our minds that reminds us that there's something we are each uniquely built to contribute. And no matter where we are on life spectrum, all of our life's experiences will contribute to us recognizing when that moment happens, like you just described all your animal escapades as a child helped you determine in, in school, weren't, weren't, wasn't your the mission of your PhD to learn about how animals thought of things like the animal's perspective? Absolutely, yes. And then after earning my PhD at UCLA, I did a postdoc at Rutgers where we were using really innovative, cutting-edge neuroscience techniques to look at the olfactory system in the rodent brain. And when I first you know, looked at this lab as a potential place where I would go and do some research. I was like, ah, the sense of smell, nobody cares about that. Da, da, da. But they had this beautiful paper in nature, or I'm sorry, it was in science. It was a science paper. And they just did this beautiful science where they were showing that they could use the sense of smell as a tractable system for studying learning and memory in the sensory system with these really cutting edge techniques. And I thought, well, you know, I don't have to care about the sense of smell. I can still study learning and memory, which is what I'm really interested in. And I can learn these cool new techniques as well. And then once I was in that lab, oh my gosh, I just realized how silly I was for discrediting the sense of smell. I gained a healthy dose of respect for it. And this is where then my world kind of collided, right? It was this intersection of understanding the brain and how animals, particularly rodents, experience their world through their nose and how mm -hmm. that experience shapes what they learn and remember and then having the animal training aspect of it to come together to now train giant rats to use their noses i mean this is your story but it could be the story of every single experienced person's life about finding what they're uniquely built to contribute like you start over here and all that's important. And then you get here and all that's important. Like we, people who really are feeling like, oh, there's something I'm uniquely built to contribute, but I don't know what it is. I would encourage them to listen to episode after episode of this podcast, because I learned that in every conversation I have. Almost no one is doing what they started out thinking they would do, but their life experiences all come together at this intersection, just like... And then yes. they're where they need to be. And that can happen at any point in life. I've talked to 22-year-olds who have discovered that moment in time, and it stemmed from an Eagle Scout project, right? Like So, so their time period is, is shorter. But then, you know, I've talked to people who've discovered what they're uniquely built to contribute at age 55 and 60 and 65. So 
Thank you for sharing your story and the success of this project and the future possibilities with us today. I want to finish up with one last question. What needs to happen next to get this concept to just leap forward into its fullest potential for the change? Because we've talked about a lot of things it can that can affect it, that it can affect. But one of the things I've also heard you saying over and over again is you have you probably get requests every day to study this or study that or go help us with this. And yet funding is limited, resources are limited, and you can't do all of them. So what has to happen next to, to open the floodgates so you can start addressing all the possible places this could be effective? I'm so glad you asked. It is the frustrating part of my position is to receive these requests and not be able to take it on, right? We would love for our rats to be training on everything that everyone asks. Funny enough, one of the most common requests is for bed bugs. And I'm like, I don't know that the bed bugs is really like top priority, maybe, but I don't know that we're saving lives with it. So that one we have not, we haven't done that one yet. But, you know, we have, as I mentioned, these three projects that are in the final phases of development. We've proved principles that our rats can do it. We are, we've established operational, well, we've established feasibility sort of within this controlled laboratory environment. And what really needs to happen for us to move it forward and launch into a production sort of stage where the rats can get out there and do the work that we've trained them for to really save lives across these domains is that funding for operational trials. So once you have rats deployed and they're demonstrated successful, then the funders come and people help support that, right? At the research stage, there's funding for that as well, for research that has this potential. It's the in-between step that we are missing. So it's not enough to just demonstrate it in the lab. We have to demonstrate it in that operational setting. So I need funding to take my rats to Turkey. Hopefully there won't be another earthquake soon, right? But when it strikes, I need my rats to be there on the ground working in that actual live environment so that we can see if it works. And if it works, then we can secure funding to go on and make this a real project, right? And save lives. If it doesn't work, that's when we can tweak and learn from what did and didn't work and make it better so that the next time around it can. But it's that funding for the operational trials that's so difficult to get, but so critical to getting the rats out there in the field. Okay. So that is something for all of us ordinary people to understand. There, there's basically the three phases. There's the, just the in the lab trials to see if this is even a thing. Then there's the real life trials. And then there's the application of it. If everything goes well and you know how to do it, then you got to train the rats and do all the things to create a system, right? And, exactly. and all of those need an inner in- injection of funding. Okay, so we got to figure out a way to support this work in a big way. Tell us where we can get a hold of you or where people can connect next with the Popo. You can contact me through our website. It's a popo.org. You can also support our work by just adopting one of our rats. It's called an adopt a rat program, but it's really sponsoring a rat. So yeah. you can choose to sponsor one of our landmine detection rats or one of our TB detection rats. Or one of our young rats in training, Baraka, is actually my favorite rat that you can sponsor because I go and play with Baraka every day. And he is just a genius, let me tell you. Among rats, he is learning so quick. And I just know he's going to be our next Magawa. But to sponsor one of our rats, it's, it's a small, you can choose whether you make a one-off donation or if you want to make a small monthly donation on the order of like 9 or $10 a month. And every month you get an update about what your rat is doing. So every month you get the stat. So if you pick Carolina as an example, she's a TB detection rat. Every month you will get a report of how many TB patients Carolina helped find and save. This is how we come together next. This is how we, you know, I've been thinking about this statement that lately that came out of someone I wish I knew who to credit it to, but that we don't, we aren't going into the future. We're creating it. I love that. We're creating it. We're creating it with our apathy or we're creating it with our small moves, like you pointed out. And I love this future that you're taking us into. I I can't thank you enough 
for joining us. Dr. Cindy Fast, A-P-O-P-O. You get, if you look that up on the internet, we're going to have all the connections to every single thing that she and I talked about in the article. There will be a beautiful article written about this interview on the Goodness Exchange website. So if you want to see more, and we'll, of course, connect you to the formal article on the Goodness Exchange where we have the videos and so forth. So thank you so much, Dr. Fast. Well, thank you so much for having me and also for the work that you're doing, Linda. I love that you're highlighting the goodness in the world. And so thank you for that. Well, we got all come together like a constellation, the people doing the work, the folks who want to help the folks that are, that have ideas that could be hopefully expanded by, and they could get brave by just hearing a conversation like ours. So I, Cindy and I both hope that all the connections to goodness and progress and wonder that we shared with you today will carry you into your week and you will start finding all the joy that we've been talking about. Thanks.